This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. In 2022, Massachusetts voters will be given a choice to change the Commonwealth's constitution, to abandon its current mandate for a flat income tax, in favor of a permanent 4% surtax on income over $1 million. Despite voters soundly rejecting six similar referenda in past elections, the legislature ratified House Bill 86 with the hope that now the polity and the times have changed. Despite tax revenues exceeding pre-pandemic levels and billions of dollars of COVID-19 aid coming from the federal government, the legislature asserts that a permanent change to the constitution is needed for investment in education and transportation. The question for voters will be whether a tax that will affect fewer than 1% of residents will improve the lives of the rest of us, or instead jeopardize the prosperity Massachusetts has enjoyed since backing away from its high tax past. My guest today is Dr. David Turk, president of the Beacon Hill Institute. Dr. Turk's organization recently released a report entitled The Economic and Fiscal Effects of a Proposed Millionaire's Tax in Massachusetts in which he employs computer simulation to examine the likely effects of the so-called fair share amendment on the future of the Commonwealth. He examines the revenue the amendment is likely to generate, as well as the effects on the employment, investment, and out-migration of citizens in response to the change. We will discuss his methodology and explore whether voters, millionaires, and those who are not, will benefit from this change. When I return, I'll be joined by Beacon Hill Institute's Dr. David Turk. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Beacon Hill Institute's president, economist Dr. David Turk. Welcome to Hubwonk, David. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on Hubwonk uh, because uh, I was intrigued by your recently released uh, report uh, entitled The Economic and Fiscal Effects of a Proposed Millionaire's Tax in Massachusetts. Uh, you released that on the day the Massachusetts legislature voted on, on this so-called fair share amendment. Um, uh, in it, you applied the results of your, we'll talk about stamp computer simulation on the likely effects of the 4% surtax on income over a million dollars. Uh, what intri- intrigues me about your simulation is that you use complex algorithms to predict the future. For our listeners' benefit, why can't policymakers simply calculate the revenue without such complex work uh, such as those in your model? It can't because in order to get the effect on revenue of implementing this tax, you need to know how the tax would affect the tax base from which taxes are collected. So if, as we predict, the implementation of the tax is going to uh, shrink uh, production in Massachusetts, then that shrinkage in production is in turn going to have a negative effect on revenue. And in order to know what that effect is, you have to use these complex algorithms that we use in order to get the results. So legislators who assert that this uh, tax will generate, I believe the estimate is $2 billion in revenue. That assumption is made by saying we're going to impose the tax and nothing else will change. No behavior. That's right. No- it's, it's like saying if the sales tax rate is currently 5% and we increase it to 10% and then we're going to double sales tax revenues. That mm-hmm. would not happen in the case of the sales tax, which is not what we're talking about here. That wouldn't happen because increasing the sales tax rate would reduce sales. And that would therefore mean that you couldn't get a proportionate increase in revenue. 
So listeners will likely understand if they had to pay more in sales tax, they might buy less, uh, but they may not yeah. also follow that uh, uh, tax on income might make you perhaps work or invest less. So let's unpack that gradually and, and take apart the, the, the knock-on effects. Um, your report suggests that, um, and it's an issue we've talked about on this show, at least some level of high earners are likely to leave uh, Massachusetts. We've addressed this in earlier shows. We talked with uh, folks from uh, Connecticut, from their uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce. We've talked with people, economists from California who, who looked at the effect of a similar tax in California. But your, your report suggests 4,200 high earners would leave the state owing to this tax alone. How do you arrive at that number? I, I guess I'm asking you to uh, unpack the, uh, some of the algorithm within, within the STAMP technology. Okay, so in the model, we built in uh, estimates of the sensitivity of workers, where they live, whether they work, how much they work, to changes in the tax law. And in this particular case, we have built in a estimate of how uh, people will uh, adjust their residency according to uh, changes in the tax law. And in this case, how people that represent working families, as we call them, would uh, adjust their residency. So there would be one effect on, uh, on people uh, who would simply uh, reduce their work effort. Some people would just work less because they're not interested in paying another 40% in, uh, sorry, 4% in taxes. Uh, and, and there are those who would find it uh, advantageous simply to leave because of the fact that, first of all, uh, there are states that they could escape this tax entirely. And second, there are states they might rather live in anyway. So we're talking about, uh, and of course, it's those who are subject to the tax. So those are going to be, by definition, high earners. These aren't 4,200 random people who are um, right. upset by the idea of the tax, but rather those who are affected by the tax. So high earners, 4,200 high earners leaving leaving the state. That's right. Okay. Um, another finding, uh, and we can quantify this, I have the report in front of me, suggests that uh, income, and you alluded to this in your earlier answer, would also be reduced. Why would someone work less? In fact, I've had um, uh, some uh, challenges to this premise by, uh, 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 I guess, um, economists of the left who say one must now work harder to maintain one's standard of living in a uh, higher tax regime. Um, what would you say to someone who say, look, those people who with a higher tax will work less? We uh, have uh, examined the empirical literature on this. We, uh, we embed in the model assumptions that reflect what the literature says, and the literature says that people will work less, and that's what we put into the model. We, we, we do take estimates that have been done in other studies to get an idea how, they would re- how people would reduce their work effort, but we're, we believe from the uh, existing literature that we've surveyed in detail that there, it would be a reduction in work, not an increase in work. If you, if you raise taxes enough, you're going to ultimately cause people to work less. Nobody wants to work at all if the tax rate is 100%. So what what we're doing here is we're asking the question, at what point does the increase in the tax rate cause people to work less rather than more in order to make up for the lost revenue? We think that in in this case, it would be a reduction in work that we would observe, not an increase. Sure, we did a whole show on the elasticity of uh, of uh, exactly. income, uh, and uh, it's you know it slopes downward. Um, now, sales tax is another thing you mentioned, uh, sort of as a sort of an example of of how higher prices affect lower demand. Um, a higher tax in uh, in uh, sales tax would mean you'd buy less, uh, but you also maintain in this report that even a income tax would re- result in lower sales tax revenue. How does that work? Well, if, if the income tax raises, uh, uh, sorry, if the income tax reduces 
uh, production and disposable income that's going to thereby also reduce the demand for consumer goods and that's going to cause a loss in sales tax revenue. I see. So you know, less less money means less less things bought. Right, right. You tax something more, you get less of it. I, I would like to add the point that it's two that it's important to recognize that this tax will fall on the profits of firms that make uh, more than a million dollars a year in taxable income. Now, what that does is it discourages those firms from engaging in investment. And if they invest less, that means they need less labor. It means that that represents a downward shift in the demand for labor and thus a reduction in wages and a, jo- and a reduction in job opportunities. And that's another thing that we capture with our analysis. I'd like to unpack this concept for our listeners, uh, particularly those uh, involved with small business. If you have a, an S corporation and that S corporation earns $2 million, that doesn't generate $2 million income for its owners. Rather, uh, that's money that then is turned around and reinvested into the firm or distributed to his fellow investors. Uh, so in a sense, whereas it sounds like an income tax on ordinary income, uh, in most cases, particularly in S corporations, is a tax on the company itself and its investors. Right. Well, if the if the firm itself makes profits, those become taxable at the level of the individual owner of the firm, irrespective of whether that those profits were distributed to that person. In fact, this is the this is part of our argument. Uh, if you're running an S corp or a partnership, you might need to raise let's let's say two million dollars in profits in order to attract investment. If you succeed in getting those profits, you're going to need to uh, uh, bestow those profits or shift provide those profits to the people who put up the, the investment. So if, if you're running a, 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 a S-Corp and you turn to a uh, equity firm for a loan to uh, to expand the firm that you're working for, and that loan uh, is offered to you in return for a promise of a return on that loan, then your profits become that return. And your profits have to be high enough to induce the investor to put the money into the firm. You may not see them as an owner of the firm, but they have to be there so that you can uh, re- you can reward the investor as he expects to be rewarded for providing the the money. And of course, right, that that investor can put his money wherever he likes uh, right. and it may go elsewhere uh, because the cost uh, to generate the, the money is, is too high. So we have a word for that in economics. It's the cost of capital. Mm-hmm. The cost of capital is the cost of getting investment dollars into the firm. And that cost Uh, reflects what the investors, the people putting up the money, have to get to be willing to put that money at risk and in this particular firm. And if the firm can't promise that money because it's paying a big chunk of it out in new income taxes, the investment won't occur. Well, I'm happy to talk about it because uh, as an investor, and I think I speak for small business owners out there, you forego a lot of income and you become your own investor. And you if you get that $2 million profit, you have a choice. You can put it in your pocket or you can invest it in the firm. And what you effectively do is you have to invest the profits after tax. So uh, every time you earn that profit, some of it come, goes away and, uh, and there's right. less to invest in the company and ultimately less to pay workers, less, less to grow. So this, this induces the firm, the firm owner, the small businessman to put the money in his pocket rather, into, rather than into his business and thus mm-hmm. induces him not to hire workers, not to pay wages that he otherwise could pay if it wouldn't be for the tax. We initially at the top of the show talked about an expectation of $2 billion from the legislature in a static model. Your dynamic model predicts a... Uh, a different number. Um, we, we've gone over some of the reasons. What are the, what is the, the number your modeling suggests will be rev- uh, generated by this? 
Well, if if there were no impact on the economy, something that's impossible to believe, then the two billion might well be correct. But as we show here, the economy is going to shrink. We're going to lose $431 million in production in Massachusetts. The consequence of that is to reduce the amount of revenue that the legislature can collect. So we see in the first year of implementation, the new revenue coming to more like $1.3 billion rather than $2 billion, quite a bit less. Quite a bit less. I think it's a bit ironic. I don't know if you're following the debate over uh, uh, the tax credits for filmmakers in, in Massachusetts. Yeah, and, we, and clearly the legislators understand, let's let's give these tax uh, breaks to filmmakers because our nascent uh, exactly. filmmaking industry needs that benefit to attract investors. Um, whereas they don't see the increase in taxes to have it, the opposite effect. So reducing taxes attracts business, but raising taxes doesn't um, um, alienate business. Yeah, right. So it, it, it's a refusal to understand the implications of what they already believe. They already believe these people were talking about that the tax credit is important for luring the film industry in here and getting them to invest. But we now we want to believe at the same time that you can raise taxes on business profits and that'll have no effect on their incentive to invest. So it's a, a convoluted sort of thinking that leads to the conclusion that this uh, tax increase is going to be all good for the economy. Yeah, too bad we can't pass a rule that's tax credits for everyone and just forget the whole darn thing. It's too bad we can't just cut the tax rate rather than <laughs> raise it. All right. All right. Let's let's uh, let's uh, change the, the focus into uh, uh, ultimately whatever that number is. It's if it's not two billion, it's one point three billion. Uh, that's money that um, uh, uh, you know legislators can can use to invest in what we all consider important areas such as education and transportation. But your report does speak to both those issues, education and transportation. Let's uh, first start um, with uh, education uh, and the promise to take some of this revenue, regardless of its size, and dedicate it to that. What do you have to say to that? Well, what we have to say about that is there's no clear justification for spending any more on education. We're something like the sixth or seventh largest uh, state in the country when it comes to per pupil spending, why do we need to be a number one or number two instead of simply number six or number seven? There is there is no obvious case for throwing more money at education. Uh, I, I think we understand why the teachers union is so enthusiastic about this uh, this bill, this amendment, and that's because the teachers union always wants more money, even though. Uh, some of our own research has shown in past years that throwing more money at education does not necessarily improve educational results. Uh, and, uh, and then I can get right back to transportation now. Uh, the, the trouble with Massachusetts, it is, it is one of the worst states in the country in terms of the management of its infrastructure budget. It's, and it does, it does a very bad job of, of using infrastructure money to improve infrastructure at the same time that it's very costly in terms of what it has to spend on infrastructure to achieve a given outcome. And that's documented by the Reason Foundation. So that would tell me that if we're going to put more money into, into infrastructure or roads and bridges, that we need to, first of all, figure out how to spend the money we've got. Do we need more money if, in fact, we were spending the money more efficiently? That would be my objection there. Oh, and there's one more by me. Okay, sure. You're welcome. <laughs> there's one more. First of all, it's very disingenuous to write into this amendment that the money is going to be raised, whether it's 1.3 billion or 2 billion, the money that's going to be raised is going to be dedicated to education and transportation. Disingenuous because there's nothing in this amendment 
that requires this current spending to go up by whatever amount of revenue the amendment brings in. And then it brings in $1.3 billion, which we think it would be first. Then that's no guarantee that spending on education and, inf and infrastructure is going to rise by $1.3 billion because these activities are already financed from so many other sources. And it would be entirely possible to cut the, the spending from these other sources before allocating the revenue from this tax increase to these particular activities. Money is fungible. So I, I, this legislature is going to take the revenue that comes out of this tax increase and put it into the general fund. And then, it's, then it starts to decide how much money it wants to put into education and infrastructure. And there's no nothing in this amendment that requires them to increase current spending by whatever amount of money the uh, legislation, the amendment brings in. So the, the marketing on this appears to make the equation that says, we have education, we've got $2 billion, the new... Um, right. money we'll spend on education is X plus 2 billion. But what That's you're right. saying is- The money we will spend, it was X last year, it's gonna be X plus two this year. No guarantee of that because the money that got us to X could be taken out of X and put into other activities. That's right. So as you, as you say, this money, uh, regardless of the marketing, could be spent anywhere the legislature likes. Right. And we can still have crumbling infrastructure and could education needs. And you could have all the above, right? And, and, and there's no way the legislature can rationally or effectively make sure that spending on these activities actually goes up by the promised amount. I want to take um, uh, another argument that the advocates of this uh, tax use, which is to say that, you know, what we're really effectively doing is, is redistributing money from high earners to low earners, uh, you know, as a way to um, balance the large wealth disparity uh, which incidentally has been made worse by the pandemic. Um, can you see a way to justify a tax on those earning more than a million a year in this way? No. Why? Why? Where is it written that once you make a dollar over a million, you have to pay a higher tax rate? There is nothing <laughs> anywhere to say that this is the equitable thing to do. It's just called equitable. We just we're just going to say it's fair, and then and then expect everybody to see agree with us. Well, sure, it's fair, but is it fair? It's highly arguable that it's not a bit fair. Well, it may be written in our constitution. So if you're look, looking for well, it, it's, it's, be going, to down. Be, eh. it's yeah. going to be, but then that's the oddest thing too. Why would we want to uh, write uh, a tax philosophy into the constitution? Why don't we uh, simply, if, if, the, if the idea is that we need another couple billion dollars, then raise the tax rate, do that. They won't do that, of course, because if they did that, they, the legislature, they'd be thrown out of their jobs. I think you point to an important uh, point about the uh, uh, raising taxes on high earners. I think uh, our listeners would probably all agree, uh, we all work hard, uh, we put a lot of sweat equity in all our pursuits and some pay more than others. I think really the tax, um, raising tax, uh, disincentivizes taking of risk. So the reason uh, millionaires are millionaires are not that they work harder necessarily, but they were willing to take a flyer on a good idea and risk making zero or negative uh, in the interest right. of making far more. So if we disincentivize risk-taking, uh, all these great businesses that we enjoy uh, and all the great innovations we enjoy and all the prosperity we enjoy will be diminished, not because we'll be working less, but we will be taking fewer risks because we're being paid less to take those risks. Quite the case, yes, Ab absolutely. Now, I want to back away from, let's, let's uh, look at this issue 
um, through the eyes of those who favor the amendment. Uh, it's pro- predominantly uh, funded by labor unions um, and, and uh, uh, their organizations. Uh, what is in it for, you know, for our listeners? What is in it for a labor union? Why would taxing millionaires benefit labor unions? Well, we always have to serve the teachers union because the teachers union has a huge influence in the legislature. The, the, the incumbents in the legislature largely depend on teacher union contributions in order to gain office. So the teachers union wants it because it's prom- because the amendment promises it that at least say half of it will go to teachers and the teachers union always wants more money. So that, there's that explanation. Other labor unions, we can't be so sure that this would benefit them. The, um, the, uh, if you're a member of a, of a union, and not many people are anymore, but if you're a member of a union that, serve, that say, uh, does gas station construction, that, would, that you could be employed as a union member constructing a new gas station, and that gas station doesn't happen because of the because of the imposition of this tax on the profits of the gas station owner, you're not in, your welfare is not improved. I think this has to be seen as coming from the teachers union and from the SEIU, both of which are in the business of income redistribution uh, based on whatever their moral philosophy is. That's, that's an interesting response because uh, I, I've contemplated this myself. I thought, well, listen, uh, this, this seems to be uh, sort of pitting um, uh, business owners against labor. And one has to assume that if a tax like this diminishes the size of the economy and the demand for labor, that ultimately labor unions, labor being the key word rather than the union, uh, are, are going to be essentially shooting themselves in the foot. They're essentially reducing the demand for the product they organize. It's a public employees union that love this. Mm-hmm. So the MBTA workers who are mem- members of a union think that they'll get more money out of this. Uh, the teachers, of course, and others, it's the, the public employees union makes up most of the union membership these days. Uh, we're not talking here about construction workers being uh, beneficiaries of this legislation. We are talking about MBTA workers and teachers. Well, ultimately, though, uh, the government doesn't have its own money. So if they're essentially relying on tax revenue, anything that hurts tax revenue or the tax base ultimately yeah. hurts us all in the long run. Sure. Okay. All right, um, we're getting close to the end of our time together. Um, and I, I wanna look more in the abstract and say, we've had, you know, since, I don't know, the beginning of time, a, a, a constitutionally mandated flat tax. The legislator wants to raise a tax. Every uh, last person in the, in the Commonwealth uh, gets his taxes raised. Uh, we're introducing the concept of a graduated income tax. I'd like you, to, as, a, as an economist, to talk about What's this uh, most important aspect of going from a flat to a graduated income tax? The most important aspect is it makes it easier for the special pleaders who uh, control our political life to uh, stick out their hand and get more money. If you if you have look look at California and New York, for example, both of which are pretty good tests of the idea whether we want to graduate income tax. Both states, especially California, have steeply graduated rates, and they got those rates because of the power, largely, of the public employee unions, who believe that they can uh, garner more funds for themselves if they have a graduate graduated rate. The purpose of a graduated rate is to reduce political pressure to keep taxes from rising. Uh, the, uh, the, a, the, it's already true that high-income earners pay the lion's share of income taxes. Well, we're going to make them pay more without political consequences by simply 
raising the tax rate on a, on a fairly substantial chunk of their income. And the political consequences are small. High income earners aren't voting for Democrats anyway. We'll just, uh, we'll just stick it to them and uh, we'll have more funds around to uh, pay out to the uh, public employee unions and without the resistance from uh, the ordinary taxpayer. This lost in the past because the legislature tried explicitly to introduce a graduated rate that would infect low income earners as well as high income earners. This time they're clever enough to avoid taxing anybody except say the top 0.6%. And, that, and they can collect all they want from that group without having to worry about uh, political uh, re repercussions. Uh, that's why we have a graduate, that's why they want a graduated income tax to reduce the political downside of increasing the tax rate so they can raise more money to fill their coffers. I read in your bio, you did your uh, PhD dissertation. You had uh, um, one of my heroes, James Buchanan. Uh, I don't know how you worked with him, how you had the benefit of, of, of standing from him. And he's famous he for pub. He was my advisor. <laughs> Wonderful. He's, he's well known for public choice theory. And he says, oh. look, um, we're, we're all subject to economic forces, including politicians. The cost in Massachusetts of raising taxes on everyone is high. The cost of raising taxes on a small minority of, of, of Massachusetts is low. Uh, it may even redound to the benefit of uh, a, um, a legislator who votes for it. So he actually may earn support for raising taxes on a minority. Um, but ultimately, by dividing the electorate into groups uh, each year, a legislator can raise the ra rates on one group uh, for the benefit of the other majority group and, uh, and keep getting elected. Is, is that more or less what you're saying? That, that, and he makes that point in his writings. And uh, it's, it's exactly equivalent to saying that we're going to raise the tax rate on red-haired men between 35 and 40. There are not very many of them, and we can raise the tax rate to our heart's content uh, because we won't care about the fact that that particular cohort won't like us politically anymore. We don't have to care if they're a small minority. Right. And, but ultimately, they'll come for the brunettes and the blondes. So, oh, yeah, that's, I would make that argument. Why, be careful of what you wish for, I'd say, in this case. Wonderful. Okay. Um, again, I think implied in the HB 86 um, strategy is implicitly understanding that dynamic. Once we depart from a flat tax, uh, we essentially, that's the proverbial camel's nose under the tent. Uh, that, I would say that too. Right. All right. Well, so we're getting uh, uh, to the end of our, our time together. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Beacon Hill Institute and your work, where <laughs> can they find you uh, and the other research that you've done in the past? We're at beaconhill.org. Mm -hmm. The Institute has been in existence for some 30 years, but only for the last four or five years have we operated as a uh, self-standing 501c3 public charity. We were part of Suffolk University for the first 25 or so years. Uh, and then it became clear that Suffolk would be a lot happier if we were separate from Suffolk. <laughs> I would also, I also became happier. <coughs> so we, uh, we are a self-standing 501c3 charity, just like Pioneer. Wonderful. Well, uh, much of the work that you've done dovetails with some of the research <laughs> we've done here at Pioneer. Uh, so it's uh, sort of uh, um, like minds, and I hope uh, our voices can be heard. What can our listeners do to, um, now that this is a... Established on the ballot, what would you recommend our listeners do to ensure that uh, their preferences are heard, or that this uh, this uh, amendment uh, goes down in defeat? I think your listeners need to spend some time listening to the arguments that we've made and that Pioneer has made. I, I think that it's 
the, the, the thing is that it's very tempting to say, oh, well, I don't make a million dollars. Why don't I just vote for this? That's fine. And we'll, we'll, we'll do good things with the money. But the, the, the listeners need to think about the points that, that we've been raising here and ask themselves whether this is this kind of uh, exploitation of the wealthy is what we want to bring, a, bring about in Massachusetts. I don't think there's, I think that's the most urgent thing. I'm, I, I gather from the polls that it's very likely to be passed. Perhaps it's a sign of the uh, progressive times in which we live now. But take a look at California and New York and ask if you want to become like those states in terms of the outflow of high income families. Well, that's a, a good way to end the show. Um, again, it, uh, it refers to some of the other podcast uh, episodes we've had here at Hubwonk. I really, really appreciate your time, Dr. Turk. It's uh, your insight and your research is, is helpful in this debate. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, you can give us a five-star rating and a favorable review. And of course, it's always welcome if you want to share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for future episode topics, you're welcome to contact me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.